0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. There's a lot to talk about and I don't know what I'm going to say yet. So, wow, this is going to be fun.
0: We'll see where things go. We will see where things go. Uh, before we go ahead and do that, though, I just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So as Derek said, there's a lot of material to cover today, and one of the reasons for that is because we have a good, what is it, five, six chapters that we're covering, Genesis 12 through 17, and then Abraham 1 and 2. There is a lot that is happening in these chapters, a lot happening in these texts, some transitions, some new stories, new genres. It's just a lot of stuff to hit you at once. And kind of hard to figure out where exactly you're going to put your focus. But also that depends on what you're looking for. And I hope uh, just based on what is in these texts that everybody is able to think of some, you know, some thoughtful questions to ask themselves as they consider the stories that we are reading in here. And I'll definitely plan on talking about some of my questions a bit later after a couple of words about what we're going to be focusing on today. So we're on Abraham now, and the genre and kind of stories we are going to get now have changed significantly. Genesis 1 through 11, these chapters fall in the genre of myth. And to recap, the presence of myth in the Bible has a purpose similar to, if not the same as, other myths that existed. They they often justify the established order as a uh, as a primeval and divine arrangement that can't be changed or challenged, except by other myths. We, uh, we, we actually talked about this at the beginning of the year with uh, Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth that was dominant at the time the biblical creation story was written. And it, uh, it featured a lot of violence, a lot of blood, hierarchy, enslavement, and you know this idea of power over humans and land as divinely appointed. Um the creation myth we have in the Bible was written by a people oppressed by a society that believed all these things present in the Enuma Elish and Genesis 1 through 11 these mythological chapters they contest this uh this imperial theopolitics of Babylon and their creation myth they are not meant to be read historically or scientifically I saw someone on the internet say um in my research on this that the beginning of genesis isn't meant to challenge darwin's theory of evolution but rather challenge social darwinism and i and i really like that it lets us know that the uh that the purpose of these stories isn't to tell us exactly how the world uh and everything in it came into being or what exactly happened in the past but rather How the world can continue on, how it can be kept together, what kinds of things tear it apart, what matters most about the present and future and humanity itself, and how we deal with crises. These are the kinds of questions that myths are supposed to help us answer. Uh, Middleton says that they're supposed to dig deeper than scientific or historic facts to express basic truth about life, which is difficult to express in uh, any other way. But anyway, we're transitioning from the genre of myth to the genre of saga, which focuses on a person, a family, or a tribe. We're moving from all the big conflicts of the of of the myth to a family-focused story, but some themes will persist and the following three will all be seen in Abraham's story. There will be more disquieting origin stories like the ones we've seen in the past in Genesis 1 through 11. And then we have yet another reset in the biblical narrative after after Eden, after Canaan, and Lamech, and after the flood. And that reset also puts our new protagonist, the patriarch Abraham, the father of many nations, and also all the Abrahamic religions. This will put him on the margins, and uh, these new identities that he has will be uh, will be significant. Abraham is told to leave his father's house, his kin slash tribe, and he's told to leave his land as well. So the man has no land, he has no people, he has no home, he has no name. He's basically an undocumented immigrant with no birthright. Further. Uh Sarai, his wife, is barren, and they have no children. So now we have no heir, uh, unless you count a Lot, who is the closest thing that Abraham has to an heir, his nephew. Yet in the ver- in the first verses, despite all of this, in the first verses of his story in chapter 12, God promises him a land. He promises him a great nation that will descend from him. And he promises him a great name. So knowing how this story ends already teaches us, you know, one lesson about God, which is that he can truly take the least of us, take a nobody and turn us into something great, something beyond our comprehension, something that can, you know, be what... Abraham ended up being the father of three different religions, the father of 12 tribes of many nations, the author of a covenant and, you know, so much more. So uh, that's just one brief lesson we can take from that. And we'll probably talk about a little bit more as we progress through the stories of 12 through 17. But uh, yeah, anyway, as a summary in this story that we're going to read today, we're going to encounter the call of Abram and the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant the problematic episode in Egypt with Sarai. Uh, we'll address Abram and Lot's separation, Hagar's introduction into the house of Abraham, into the house of Abram, her encounter with the divine, the birth of her son Ishmael, and the introduction of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. We're also going to encounter the voices of of women more often than normal. Or well, at least more often than we're accustomed to in the text, even though there is a, a curious suppression of Sarai's voice in one of these stories, we're also going to see women in power and women and uh, women experiencing the divine in ways that we're not accustomed to seeing them do it, and that will need to be lifted up and talked about too. Um, yeah. Are, are there any other, you know introductory thoughts we want to give before we like, really dive into this, Derek?
1: Right. I want to talk a little bit about Crash Theory because I haven't mentioned it in a while and we may have new listeners and I want to uh, reference it throughout the uh, the episode. So here's Crash Theory, which I learned from Rabbi Benay Lapi. You can look at her whole TED talk on this if you go to tinyurl.com slash crash theory, all one word, C R A. S-H-T-H-E-O-R-Y. So, tinyurl.com slash crash theory, and it will link to a YouTube video. So, crash theory has to do with responses and resilience to the crashes of your meta narrative, or what she calls the master story. So, you're raised with a particular master story that answers all your questions and you don't even know you have these questions but then something happens crash right that makes this story no longer work for you for whatever reasons and you have three and only three options option one is to fortify your master story with all sorts of barriers that don't allow the crash to get in right That essentially denying the crash and pretend that it didn't happen, and you artificially preserve the same master story unchanged. Mm -hmm. Then option two is to leave your master story, abandon it because it doesn't work anymore, and go into the new master story. Uh, In the queer experience, option one is the closet, like oh no I'm not really gay, or oh no I'm you know denying that. Um, option 2 is completely abandoning your story to to have a new type of queer life, which some people do. But option 3 is different because um, it avoids the binary thinking that's behind option 1 and option 2. And the binary option, uh, the binary thinking is that these master stories are all or nothing. They're black and white. You're either... Um, It's a whole package deal. Whereas option three, what you do is you don't deny the crash and nor do you reject the baby with the bathwater option two uh, approach of of rejecting your master story completely. But what you do is you retell your story in light of the crash, using the crash to tell you what parts of the story work and don't work. And that way you get... um, You get essentially the best of both worlds. So there are many times where we will have to face challenging things in the stories that we've received, and then we have to retell them. For example, we've got this boast in lineage, right? Mm -hmm. Right here in chapter 12, like, oh, Abraham's great. Abraham's chosen by God. You've got the chosen people. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what do you do with that? Are all people included? Like, what does that mean? So in terms of boasting in lineage, I love how John the Baptist retells this narrative when he's calling folks to repentance in Luke 3, verse 8. John the Baptist says, Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So here you have... Uh, a very interesting sort of commentary or rebuttal of this idea of lineage, and so you're so you're retelling the story. And for me, a lot of these uh, texts in Genesis, I'm going to hold in light of how these stories get retold in the New Testament, because I'm primarily a New Testament scholar. So. They, that gets back to, like, what is your goal? Is your goal to figure out, well, what does the text mean in its own historical context? Or what do we, as a living tradition, how do we wrestle with the text and how do we retell the story? And there's room for both as long as you're clearly telling uh, what you're doing. And I think when we get to the Genesis 22 narrative of the Binding of Isaac, there's what the text says and then there's what what we're going to do with it. And those are those can be very, very different. mm. So are we ready to jump into um, Genesis 12?
0: <laughs> as ready as uh, as ready as I'll ever be. I, I don't really know where to, you know, begin here except with uh, these questions that I have, and I, I want to see if you have any other questions, uh, Derek, that you have attempted to answer uh, in the, you know, in the course of the text, but uh, you know one question that i had through genesis 12 is what are we to make of you know abram and sarai's time in egypt specifically the absence of sarai's voice and her being basically sold into slavery yeah
1: um i think uh yeah i don't i don't actually know what to do with that text uh in, that makes me feel at, a
0: lot better first. Let me just name that. <laughs> Derek doesn't even know what to do with it. That's great. That makes me so feel a lot I better. So I
1: think the Joseph Smith material in Abraham, in the book of Abraham, Joseph now tries to fix it by saying, well, the idea to uh, claim Sarah as a sister rather than a a, a wife is, is God's idea. So it, there's no problem here. Don't look at this. There's no problem. But that, like I said last week short-circuits the real conversation that we need to have. Mm -hmm. And I think um, Sarah here, the the entry into Egypt, uh, there's a later contrast with Hagar, who's an Egyptian woman. There's Mm -hmm. all these other things playing around, but I'm not sure yet exactly what to do with this because it is kind of uncomfortable to have Abraham claiming Sarah as... Sister. Oh, absolutely. Um, and using her to basically throwing her under the bus to save his life. Right. Right. And I think there's the function of patriarchy that we have to not uh, ignore. Right. We've got stories about women and we've got the voices of women at, at times in the text. But still, everything that we've got here uh, is affected by patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Sarah and Hagar are affected by patriarchy in different ways about what are the expectations of women and what are the obligations of women in this time uh, to serve their husbands, to bear offspring, to do all these other things. And I think there's there's just a bunch to wrestle with the text and there may not be one correct way of wrestling with the text.
0: Mm-hmm. And something else. Wanna... Oh, sorry. Go yeah. Ahead. I was just going to say that. uh You know something else that uh, you know. In addition to patriarchy, what we see in uh, you know Joseph Smith's editorial insert of Abraham is that you know when they put this on God, you know that might tempt us, especially in the church, to put some of our problematic previous practices on the divine, and uh, even even here we're not entirely. I mean, like you said, we're trying to fix it. We're trying to explain this kind of problematic text away with what is uh, present in uh, Abraham 1, and we use the divine to do it. And this is kind of what we are wont to do in the church when we have, you know, some problematic aspects of our past that we would rather, you know, not talk about. We tend to blame those things on God or to say things like God's ways are not our ways Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to, this whole thing with Sarai, when it comes to other previous things, whether it be polygamy or whether it be, uh, you know, the priesthood and temple restrictions, there have been many attempts to put these on the divine. And I think that's uh, another conversation that Merit's having in terms of how we address or, you know, just this wrestle that we have to have with the text or with uh, with our immediate history is how much we decide to involve God in you know the problematic things that have happened in the past right that's all go ahead. yeah what was your i want
1: to i wanted to to jump back to the beginning of genesis 12 because there's some okay. beautiful text here oh absolutely and the first uh few verses of cha- chapter 12 are a really important pivot in the entire structure of genesis you've got these primordial myths of genesis 1 through 11 that you've mentioned yeah uh The focus is Mesopotamia. The focus is the world as a whole. And now we're pivoting to a single individual. And Christine Hayes at Yale says, basically what's happening is, well, God tried working with everyone and God tried working with people as a whole. But looking at Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, the flood, the uh, Tower of Babel incident, God says, well, I'm going to pivot. And try to reach out to just one person or just one family. Maybe I can, uh, maybe maybe that will work this time. And I think this is representative, for me, of what God does with all peoples. I, I don't like this idea of uh, a chosen ethnicity that is special to God and others are not, right? Which, which is part of the narrative of the Hebrew Bible. But I imagine that that is just a... An example of what God is doing with every people—that God can work with every uh, ethnicity—and God can work around these places throughout the world. And we just have one. I, I love how this uh, is, is taught with the within the restoration. How well we've got uh, the records of the people in, in the American continent. We've got the records of people throughout the world that God is sending these prophets to all of these places. And so we we can take this exclusive in an exclusive way or we can take it in a sort of a generalization of this is what God does with every people. Like every people would be a chosen people. Now this isn't what the text says, of course, because clearly you've got a um, chosen people. But there's hints of this in that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? And that's yes. why I like this foothold theory of like, God works through relationships. God works by sending people, and God starts somewhere and expands outward this ever-increasing circle of inclusion and mm-hmm. love and acceptance mm-hmm. and incorporation into the covenant. Amen. So let's go back to... Um, I'm going to read from Alter. This is uh, Robert Alter's translation of Genesis twelve one through 4. All right. And remember, we're now... Zooming in on one particular of these uh, families right after you have the dispersion in Genesis 11, you've got now all these nations. We're going to zoom in on one of them and figure out what God God is going to do with that. Here's what uh, Alter's translation says. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who damn you I will curse, and all the clans of the earth through you shall be blessed. And Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went forth with him, Abraham being 75 years old when he left Haran. So there's a bunch to unpack here. Oh, boy I could talk about an hour on this so <laughs> let me just start out by saying that abraham finds himself where queer people find themselves a lot having to leave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. their uh their land their their uh, birthplace their father's house right and the author of hebrews points this out very interestingly that Abraham started out not even knowing where where he's going because it doesn't say, "Go to Canaan, it says, "Go to the place where I will show you," and Abraham starts out on that journey not even knowing where it will end up and I think that's the journey that queer people face It's also the journey that we as a church place uh, face when we are when we're called by God to include LGBTQ folks we don't know. Where that's going to end up, but we have to just step out in faith, not knowing the whole picture. And I think we, as a church, have been too afraid to take even the first step of calling, uh, of God calling us into what is unknown at the time. But it is a step of faith, mm-hmm. um, and you can see this in Hebrews eleven eight through ten, where Abraham obeyed by going to a place where he wouldn't even know where it is. And you can see in this text two things: Abraham's faith. And, um, Abraham's intelligence. So we've got, uh, Abraham is one of the most faithful people in the Bible. And we've also got Abraham as one of the most intelligent people in the Bible. And you know how we know he's the most intelligent? It's that he knew a lot.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. I was like, yo. He knew a lot. <laughs> Ah, oh, man! I, I, was I was working on that for I was working on that for days, you know Derek worked on that longer than he worked on his preparation for this episode.
1: Yeah, wow, yeah,
0: <laughs> we had gone almost twenty minutes. I thought I was safe. goodness nope, I was not <laughs> I thought okay, he knew a lot <laughs> that I, I might actually steal that one. That's actually pretty clever, <laughs> yeah, um.
1: And I I just want to remember there's just a bunch of of stuff about identity here, right? Because here we have Abraham coming from a polytheistic background. To leave those things is unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. This is the first immigration we have in the Bible. There's no other precedent. It's not like, oh, immigration is just something everyone does. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got dispersion, right, where people in, in Genesis 11 are moving out to new places. But here... Abraham is immigrating to a place where there already are people, and that is new and unprecedented. So we've got Abraham being the first immigrant, which puts him in a very vulnerable place. He's abandoning um, his birthplace. It's just I think there's just so many things here about he's not only uh, abandoning his birthplace, but he's abandoning the idolatry of his father. Right. He is Mm -hmm. betraying his father's religious Mm -hmm. Uh, commitments and I Mm -hmm. think that is something special like this unknown lord um, I guess unknown to Abraham Mm -hmm. in a polytheistic environment calls out to to Abraham and says go somewhere and then Abraham does it and that's probably just where I should leave that Um, people can figure out what that means I think I'm ready to uh, move on to talk about Uh, Melchizedek briefly. Okay, Melchizedek. And I think there's another example here of um, uh, I'm going to look at the the verses. This is in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. You've got this shadowy, mysterious figure that comes from nowhere and goes nowhere. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest to El Elyon. Uh, This means God Most High. I'm reading from Alter's translation. And he blessed him, and he said, "Blessed, Blessed be Abraham to El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who delivered your foes into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tithe of everything. So we've got something very interesting going on, because later on in... Hebrews, we've got a big problem. So Hebrews is arguing for the supremacy of Christ. And Christ was not uh, part of the tribe of Levi. He was not literally a priest. He was uh, from the tribe of Judah, of course. And so you've got this little bit of a problem here. Like, oh, no, I'm trying to look at the superiority of Jesus over the... um, priesthood structure the institutional temple um, levitical priesthood structure what am i going to do the authors the author of hebrews says and comes up with this very interesting creative retelling of the whole thing it's an option three retelling you could say oh no jesus can't be the messiah because he's not you know part of the the tribe of levi Mm -hmm. but the author of hebrews essentially goes all the way around and say look Here you have Levi is a descendant of Abraham and Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek didn't get his priesthood from anywhere. Um, It's not based on lineage. The author of Hebrews points out that it's here Melchizedek shows up without father, without mother, without genealogy, without lineage, without any of this other stuff. Um, And now this proves that Levi, being in the uh, implicitly in the loins of Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek. So you have this invention of the Melchizedek priesthood based on the need to say, "Well, I've, well, we, we're stuck here. Jesus isn't of the tribe of Levi, but I want to make sure that he's a priest. So here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to say, well." Jesus is a, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as uh, Psalm 110 says. So you have this creative retelling of the whole story in order to subvert some of the limitations that were implicit in the story. Um, the uh, the uh, Levitical priesthood being le- limited only by lineage, right? And we're going to have to do that a lot as queer people. We're going to have to look at that and say, oh, no, I've got something that trumps Well, We can't even use that. Can we use the word Trump?
0: I don't see why not. It's a verb. It was a verb. Well,
1: it was a verb long before. Well, anyway. Yes. So we have to creatively retell. And I think we look at this with um, Abraham. Uh, And I'm going to go on to Genesis chapter 15. Because I think this is another good uh, option three retelling of the Abraham story. Mm-hmm. So Abraham is the pride of the people of Israel, right? Uh, we're descendants of Abraham. We're covenanted through Abraham. We're Abraham's special people. We're obeying a circumcision, which was given the covenant given in to Abraham. All this Abraham stuff. But here's what uh, Genesis fifteen one through six says: After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "Fear not, Abram. I am your shield." Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, "O my master, Lord, what can you give me when I'm going to my end childless? And the steward of my household is Damasek Eliezer. And Abram said, Look, to me you have given no seed, and here a member of my household is to be my heir. And now the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, But he who issues from your loins will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars if you can count them. And he said, So shall be your seed. And he trusted in the Lord and he reckoned it to his merit. And what I love with this is what Paul does with this with Romans chapter 4. He makes the point, look, um, traditionally this last verse is, is translated as and, it, uh, and Abraham believed the Lord, and this, the belief, was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So rather than salvation by uh, uh, the works of the law, uh, or the sort of covenant markers, rather than being who's included based on these covenant markers, we look at this. First of all, Paul it makes the point. That, look, Abraham was saved by faith back when he was an uncircumcised Gentile, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't circumcised yet. Um, He didn't have the covenant of circumcision yet, and he's not trusting in works, or he's not trusting in any of these things. But Paul includes the Gentiles not by making them honorary—well, he does make them honorary— Well, what am I saying is Paul includes the Gentiles by saying they're children of Abraham, but not on Jewish terms, but by saying, well, Abraham really is the father of everyone who's justified by faith. Because back when he was justified, it was by faith and he was an uncircumcised Gentile. So Mm -hmm. really it's sort of twisting the whole power structures upside down. Rather than including Gentiles on Jewish terms, he says that Jews are included on Gentile terms in a way.
0: Another option, Uh, three thinking, perhaps?
1: It is, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the same thing is true when we talk about queer people. A lot of people want to include queer people on straight people's terms. But like I've argued before, we should actually have a broader vision of that and say, well, straight people are included on queer people's terms. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, I think I've talked about that before, so I'm not going to get into that right now, but I love how Paul retells the narrative. Um, any, any other thoughts on that? Or are we ready to move on to Hagar in Genesis 16?
0: On that in particular, I don't think so. Um, I, I just love, uh, like, this is where we're like starting to get a decent amount of dialogue between you know, Abraham and God, and also how God identifies himself. And we're going to see some parallels to this by the time we get to Hagar. But I just want to acknowledge the way uh, God acknowledges themselves uh, in verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Mm -hmm. Like this is kind of a Proto-identification of God as the God who leads out, a God of the Exodus, a God who leads people from old ways of life into new ways of life. And again, we're going to start seeing, um, I don't know what I'll call it, um, we, we, we start to see these kind of precursors to the God, to who the God of Abraham is, and we're going to see this again as we get into the story of Hagar and how Hagar ends up, how how God reveals themselves to Hagar and how Hagar decides to identify God for herself. So I, I think that's the only thing I want to identify just as we transition from this, uh, this this uh, Abrahamic covenant to our introduction to Hagar in chapter 16. Right. So, Chapter 16. This is where we're introduced to Hagar. And Hagar is a uh, young Egyptian woman enslaved by Abram and Sarai. She was probably one of the gifts given to Abram in exchange for Sarai. So, you know, already something to talk about there, but we won't talk about that now. But anyway, Sarai offers Hagar to Abram as a wife so that they might have children by Hagar. And Hagar has no say in this. This is also the first time where we hear uh, Sarai and where Sarai takes initiative to kind of speed up the promise of God to Abram that they would have children. And of course, the situation gets messy. Hagar, now a wife to Abram, she actually does conceive. And the te- and uh, it says in the text that she regards Sarai with contempt. But uh, another translation that may render this better says that Sarai was lowered in Hagar's eyes, which reads more like Hagar viewing herself as equal to Sarai. And of course, that causes problems in Abram's household. Sarai's angry, and uh, when she complains to Abram about it, he gives her unrestricted power over Hagar, in spite of the moral problem of exposing the pregnant Hagar to her mistress's wrath. So Hagar runs away as a result, and is intercepted by an angel of the Lord, and a couple of interesting things happen in this interaction. Not only do we have more dialogue from or not only do we have dialogue from this brown skinned Egyptian slave girl, but she 's having dialogue with with God, and dialogue with the divine is not something we 've seen in this text since Eve, like dialogue of the divine of women with the divine that has not happened since Eve. So quite significant in a text that tends to uh, privilege male voices and even more significant that she's a woman in her particular social location. In other words, a young Egyptian Egyptian and a slave. So in a way, it echoes the magnitude of the privileges that Abram eventually gets despite him being a no-name refugee and no possibility for progeny with his own wife. Then in another impressive and significant move, The angel of the Lord blesses her with what appears to be a version of the patriarchal promise made to Abram. She's promised descendants so abundant that they cannot be counted. And, you know, like one of my first questions is what exactly are we to make of this? That, you know, Hagar is given basically a patriarchal promise. Like, what are we to make of that? And how are we to view hagar how are we to view this in uh you know in comparison to what abram's given but uh anyway she's promised those descendants and further she's told the name and destiny of her child similar to how abram is told the destiny and name of his child and it's a bit confusing if you don't read it correctly because but because hagar receives this news positively we have to investigate what we might be missing in translation due to our kind of a. Uh, colonized context that we are coming from in the West. Hagar is told that her son Ishmael will be, uh, quote, a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin, close quote. Now, rather than the characteristically negative, uncontrollable stubbornness that we attend, that we tend to ascribe to, to donkeys, Hagar sees something else And considering that Ishmael's name means God hears and the context in which God has found Hagar in the wilderness, which is escaping slavery and oppression, Hagar is taking joy in this description of her son because it means he will not be a slave like she is. Wild donkeys in in Hagar's world, they were free. Uh, There's a cross-reference to Job here. uh, And this is just a brief description given to these creatures. This is Job... 39 verse 8, which is 7 through 8. It reads, It does not, talking about donkeys, it does not hear the shouts of the driver. It ranges the mountains as its pasture, and it searches after every green thing. Close quote. So Hagar is rejoicing in this news from God that even though she will have to go back to Abram and Sarai, which is you know one of the previous things that, the, uh, that God has told her to do, her son and you know, her descendants, they will be free. And Hagar rejoices in that. And finally, there's the significance of this young Egyptian slave woman with child naming God for herself. And the God she is naming is the same God of Abraham. So again, what are we to make of that? That I, I think Hagar might be the only person to name God for themselves in the Hebrew text, am I? Am I wrong about this, Derek? I I think that's correct,
1: especially looking at the um, the very specific and Hagar called the name of the Lord something. I can't. I don't. I'm not aware of any. I mean, there's other titles for God addressed elsewhere, uh, but but calling the name of the Lord something, I think is is only done by Hagar. Um, All right. and Dolores Williams has made a, a big deal about this. About Hagar is the only one who names God.
0: Yeah, that is pretty significant. I think that's where I got the idea as well. A text of Dolores Williams, but she calls God Elroy, which means uh, God who sees me or God who sees. And I mean, there's just so much. Uh, <laughs> there's just so much we can dig out of that. Uh, that this young woman of color names God for herself and names this God, a God who sees her. She has an intimate relationship with this God that both hears her and sees her. And this is the same God of Abraham. She's given the same patriarchal promises and has this relationship that is so strong. And she's given so much faith that God makes these promises to her. There's just so much to dig out of this, and I, I have no idea where I actually want to begin of the significance of getting to name God and Hagar acknowledging this God as a God who sees her. There's just like so, there's so much there. Uh But anyway, Derek, do you have any thoughts about this before we, or I mean, we'll talk further about it, but do you have any initial yeah. thoughts on this?
1: My my initial thoughts are, first of all, we need to, to locate this in... um Hagar's vulnerability. She's just been uh, es- escaped. She ran away, mm-hmm. and she's out in the wilderness by a spring of water, and uh, that's when we've got this annunciation, which is mm-hmm. I, th- which is according to Will Gaffney, the first annunciation uh, of a pregnancy to a woman. Right? We've got many of these. We've got Hannah. We've got Mary. We've got the mother of Samson. Mm-hmm. But here. We've got this, uh, this profound announcement. I actually just want to read Will Gaffney's translation here of Genesis sixteen ten 10 through uh, 13. Even though it's covered some of what you've already covered, I, I want to bring out her translation on this. Very good. The messenger of the wellspring of life said to Hagar, Greatly will I multiply your seed so they cannot be counted for multitude. Then the messenger of the fount of life said to her, Look, you are pregnant, and shall give birth to a son, and you shall, and you shall call him Ishmael, meaning God hears, for the faithful one has heard of your abuse. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live in the sight of all his kin. So Hagar named the living God who spoke to her, you are El for she said. Have I really seen God and remained af- alive after seeing God? Close quote. There is something about this annunciation that empowered Hagar to name God. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's that's profound, as you've pointed out. Hagar is triply marginalized; she's uh, enslaved, she's a foreigner, an Egyptian, and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And she now has uh, run away. Um, based on the conflict with Sarah. And uh, here's where God sees her and hears her. And I think there's something precious there that Hagar is able to name God, which is interesting in the literary context because Babylon in Genesis 11 tried to make a great name for itself. And then God promises a great name to Abraham in Genesis 12. Hmm. And here's what's interesting is that Hagar is naming God and giving God a name. Mm-hmm. And I just find that so profound that Hagar is—I've um, often talked about Eve being the first theologian in the Bible, but there's also a sense in which Hagar is the first theologian in the Bible mm-hmm. uh, naming and describing God based on her location, and there's just so much richness there that we haven't, um, we haven't explored as a people. Like, let's look at the power structures here. <laughs> is it yeah. only the people that are authorized, uh, uh, church leaders that get to name God? I'm like, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. no, this is the God that I believe in, the God mm-hmm. that reaches people and, um, uh, that is named by people, and and I claim the right to name God for myself. And we'll talk more about Hagar next week when we get into the the sort of the second half of her story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I just wanted to to name that. I mean, the, I don't even know what to say about it. It's so profound. Like she's yeah. struggling with a lot. She's struggling with patriarchy. Like I said, um, Sarah and Hagar both are struggling with different aspects of the patriarchy, like mm-hmm. the expectations on uh Sarah to have a child.
0: Right. And She's feeling pressure. Expect, that's why she did expect, this whole thing.
1: Yeah. And then the expectations on Hagar to be a surrogate for Sarah, right? Without her consent.
0: And she would uh, totally be right to like have contempt for Sarai in that context. Like if we wanted to use the word contempt, like that would fit as well. Like having someone use your body like that without consent, just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's that's totally that makes sense.
1: Yeah. um, It does that. Yeah. And I just want to. um, Oh, I just am so fascinated with the Hagar story. I don't even know what to say next. It's just, I wish we would talk about her more.
0: Absolutely. One thing I did Um, want to point out, and just something that really speaks to my soul, and you've, you've alluded to this, Derek, but I want to say a little bit more about it, is just that I hope that uh, because of where this story is situated, where we already have Abram, Abram is already a character in the story, and he exists in the same space as Hagar, yet Hagar, in this space, is able to name the God of Abraham for herself. And I think that's something we should all cultivate, is the kind of intimacy, the kind of encounters with God that allow us to, even in our struggles, or perhaps because of them, be able to name God for ourselves. I th- I just think it's so powerful that, uh, you know, in the midst of this, Hagar was able to name God because God knew her, because God heard her, and God was able to see her. I, I can only hope that, you know, every member of the church can have the kind of intimate relationship with God, with Christ, that we are able to name God for ourselves. I think there's a great power mm-hmm. in that. I think there's a great, uh, I mean, not just a power, but I, I i think there is, I mean, there's an intimacy in that. There is a safety in that. There is a faith born of that. Like th- this is kind of a half-baked thought that I'm trying to articulate. I, I guess I just want to, I want people to explore this story of Hagar that they might be able to have what Hagar had mm-hmm. the intimacy that allowed them to name God for themselves. And especially folks on the margins need that. Like, this is a big deal for us. This is how we exist in these hostile spaces. This is how Hagar was probably able to go back to Abram and Sarai and submit herself to slavery. in the even though like she had just been promised all these incredible things. So, uh, I just wanted to name that before we, uh, either talk further about the story or move to uh, a different part of this Genesis narrative.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say one other thing, uh, and then we can move into Genesis 17. But it has to do with the construction of disability. Because here we have the social construction of uh, Sarah, who is not able to have children. Now Mm -hmm. we've got a layer on this saying, well, you're not really... Worth much if you can't have a child for a man, right, and that that is something to be fixed, and then this disability requires an accommodation, and this accommodation they ended up uh, using the surrogacy of of Hagar as a way of working around the disability now to me this this shows the need for accommodation. Uh, the implementation of that accommodation doesn't have to be. Uh, approved by us today, but we, it does speak to the fact that, look, disability is socially constructed. People's value um, and ability are uh, are named through the way, in this case, patriarchy assigns the value of women, both Sarah and Hagar. And so what do we do with that? I don't have all the answers here, but it's definitely something to be thinking about, especially when we look at the language around ability with um, hagar and the lord that this is the living god who hears uh with ishmael and el you are the god who sees me um so yeah i'm like this is very interesting about how access and accommodation are all intertwined into into this narrative and that there, there may be a fruitful way of, of going in option three with this and saying well look the way that they handle these issues of access was not right but it speaks to the fact that there's something to be done when people Mm -hmm. lack access or accommodation due to the way they are disabled by uh, the social constructions
0: certainly and you can see like you can almost feel the text wrestling with that uh with the pressure that's put on hagar the pressure put on sarai and uh like the text almost tries to do justice to both Sarai and Hagar. And that's like really interesting for me to see as somebody who is just so accustomed to not seeing women's voices uh, respected in the text or, you know, respected in regular context at at church. So there's just all kinds of things happening and, you know, intersections of disability, of, of feminism and of, you know, just, So many other things. There's a lot going on in here. I guess is what I'm trying to say that merits consideration. And I only wish I had more time to fully explore that. But I could probably, we could probably put some resources in the show notes that uh, talk a little bit more about this stuff because there's there's just too much in here to try to go over in a one hour episode. As we approach the hour mark, (laughs) anyway. So let's go to this last sort of option
1: three approach that I have with Genesis chapter 17. All right. So first of all, we've got Abraham and Sarah are given new names here. Okay. And I think there's something to be said about that because names are important in the Hebrew Bible. They're intimately connected with identity and how you are known and perceived by others. Uh, So these names are identity markers and later circumcision for the males is an identity marker as well. But I want to connect this with um, our trans siblings and the power of a new name and i think it's uh it's interesting that um we've got here new names as part of a transition narrative for abraham and sarah i think this absolutely resonates with um the adoption of new names by trans folks in part of the transition to a new life and a new identity or a um or at least a new social world. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, I've said this before, is I think we have the opportunity. We have very few liturgies in our church outside the temple, but one of the ones we do is a priesthood blessing. And I think one good option is, just like we have uh, baby naming and dedication, we could have the same thing for transgender individuals who resonate with this idea. Obviously not all will resonate with this idea, but to have the um, the divine power of the priesthood, someone uh, giving that individual the name that is appropriate to their identity, uh, their chosen name, can be bestowed using a priesthood blessing, and that's the name that they will be known. Right? That's what mm. it is. I mean, we have the the priesthood is the power to uh, to loose and bind. And we can absolutely do that uh, as one, one way of liturgically marking um, transition. I also want to talk about circumcision. Like, I'm very curious, and I don't have all of the answers as to what circumcision symbolizes or represents. Like, one obvious uh, piece would would be that it has to do with something to do with fertility. Because circumcision and the uh, the blessing of posterity seem to be connected in in a number of places in the text. But I'm not sure exactly what this is doing um, and why that particular sign is, is, uh, is, is chosen here. But it does later on serve as an identity marker. And it's very clear in the text, uh, in Genesis 17, verse 13, that circumcision is to be an eternal covenant covenant, right? So there would be people who could argue, look, this is the way it is. Like, this isn't even part of the law of Moses. We don't have Moses yet, so you can't just say that. Like, this is part of how God's people works. You've got circumcision, and that is required of males who want to be in covenant relationship with God. That's literally what this chapter says. Like, everyone, every male in Abraham's household needs to be Circumcised. That's just part of the way it is to be part of the circumcision, uh, part of the covenant people of God, and that was that uh, that was uh, un unchallenged, right up until we've got the Gentiles who want to be included. And in this, you can read about this in Acts ten through fifteen, and you can also read this about this in Galatians. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the option three retelling of the narrative because here we've got a crash. It looks like we can't accept the Gentiles on their own terms. Now, I want to say that we should never talk about these things as, quote, the inclusion of the Gentiles because Mm -hmm. they always could be included if they did what we would now call conversion to Judaism, if the males were circumcised and if everyone of all genders... Subscribe to keeping the laws of Kashrut and the feasts and Shabbat, right? All these other things. Like, at this time in the first century, there was a mechanism for people to join the people of God through circumcision. Mm -hmm. And so that's the argument in Acts chapter 15, is not whether Gentiles should be included, but on what terms. And Paul clearly says on their own terms. And I mm-hmm. think this is the exact same argument. I don't even think it's just an analogy. I think it's the exact same argument that we have with queer people as to, the, the question is not whether queer people are accepted, but on what terms, because there's people on the other side who say, look, queer people can be accepted. They just have to live like straight people. They have to either be celibate or they have to marry a, someone of the gender that's not appropriate for them, right? Mm-hmm there's going to be people, even the most conservative people, traditionalist people in the church will say that there's a place for queer people and queer people are included. But my point is, that's not the question. It's on what terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Paul is very clear that when he retells the story, he says, look, that covenant that you thought was eternal, whoops, it's not. (laughs) Circumcision is not an eternal covenant. Same thing with, with sealing. I would love to do what I think my problem is, like, I'm so familiar with Paul, I'm so familiar with the New Testament it doesn't even sound radical anymore. <laughs> like what Paul says in Galatians chapter five, he basically, you know, they make a big deal about circumcision. But Paul says there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. This is in Galatians five verse six. Mm-hmm. There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is fake faith working out in love. And he like cuts the divide. Um, in a he basically goes ninety uh, in a ninety degree angle uh, to the spectrum of opinion. And just cuts straight through it and says, look, doesn't matter. And I think the same thing is true of sealing. Mm-hmm. I would love for someone to say, neither, circums- uh, neither c- see, look, I'm, I'm so used to saying it that way. Um, to me, it's the same thing. Neither is sealing nor unsealing anything but a new crea- creature, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be amazing if they got up in general conference and said, look, don't worry about it. Sealing is what it's, it's about what it's pointing to, right? You're gonna be fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how it's in this same chapter, Paul lists the fruits of the spirit, right? And circumcision is not a fruit of the spirit. Hmm. These outward things, sealing, heterosexual marriage is not a fruit of the spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, all these other things, faithfulness. That's really where where it counts. It's not this checklist gotcha thing of did you go through this little ordinance, right? Circumcision is an ordinance that people thought was eternal and like, nope, it's not. Um, But that goes back to my favorite fruit of the spirit, which is love. That is where the rubber meets the road. That is the first and second great commandments. It's about love. And I think queer people are definitely standing on the side of love. Um, Just like Paul says here in Galatians, against love there is no law. Against such things there's no law. And so for me, uh, love is my favorite fruit of the Spirit. Now, James, I know what your favorite fruit of the Spirit is. Don't say it. It's me. I'm your favorite fruit of the
0: Spirit. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) At least I saw that one coming. Yeah. Doesn't hurt as much. (laughs) Uh,
1: but this goes back to the what ends up being the real identity markers of God's people is how you Uh treat people right you want identity markers why does homophobia people say the church of Jesus Christ needs to be different it needs to stand out it needs to stand for things it needs Mm -hmm. to have identity markers it Mm -hmm. needs to have the strong identity markers I'm like Mm -hmm. yeah we do but why does homophobia have to be your identity marker why does that have to be the thing that separates you from other people. First of all, it doesn't separate you from other people. There's a lot of homophobes in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, standing for marriage, that doesn't separate you from anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In a worldwide pattern. I think standing out for love, taking a risk, not um, not a faith risk, but a social risk. Taking a social risk to say, look, we're gonna stand for queer people, even though it's gonna cause some trouble, that's the, the same thing that Abraham was called to
0: do, to step I was out. i say, not isn't knowing... that most of the Bible is like a hero like doing that very thing, like taking a social risk? Like, isn't that yep, exactly. the majority of these stories?
1: Right. All of our heroes, um, all of our faith heroes in, in uh, Hebrews 11 were marginalized in their context in, in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can go on another time about that. Mm. But I just find it. So interesting how the Bible can be used as a tool of oppression, but it also can be used as a tool of liberation. That's the challenging thing. I wish that it would just be easy, like, oh, it's obviously on the side of liberation. But no, there's people who can read it um, to harm others. And we have the choice of how we're going to tell and retell the stories. And I think what you end up doing is uh, re-inscribing this uh the blessing that you have in Genesis 9 where you have the children of Noah, which is all people, right? We're all B'nai Noah. We're all uh, children of Noah, uh, including the Gentiles. And this covenant was with the entire world, the whole rainbow. Did I talk about the rainbow last week? I must have. You did. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think what we end up doing here is – um seeing the seeds of liberation within the Scripture, and that's a choice. I, I As much as I wish that the the Bible were a magic solution, like, oh, just read the Bible and you'll you'll get it right. No, it's actually a choice, because do you use the Bible to tell you what love means, or do you use love to tell you what the Bible means? And mine is the other way around, mm. is I try to figure out, and I can't remember where I got that from. I got that from somewhere. Well, it's but a bar. there's... There's liberating ways of taking the scriptures, and there's also problematic ways of taking the scriptures. And uh, Paul is a great example for me of, well, he didn't do this perfectly, right? There's problems, but he's, there's a great. it's a great way of ex- uh, of looking at the text and saying, no, we're going to retell it in a way that's inclusive. We're going to retell it in a way that's profoundly um, counter-cultural, even if it's contrary to the culture. We received. And there's a uh, miraculous things that you can do with a Bible.
0: So that's probably where I should end things. I don't know. All right. Sounds good, my friend. And that puts us at uh, just over an hour. So this is a great point to go ahead and end our conversation today on uh, Abraham, Sarai, Hagar's story. But before we go ahead and uh, wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Features uh, in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. I Saw that he's doing an interview with uh, Taylor Petrie. Uh, Taylor Petrie, friend of the podcast, he's been on before. Uh, He's also the editor of Dialogue Journal, the whole thing. He's the person who brought us into uh, Dialogue, the Dialogue Podcast Network, and he's also a brilliant scholar and theologian. We like him a lot, so definitely want to peep that episode when it comes out. It might already be out, actually, now that I think about it. But anyway. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at
1: BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. Also on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. You can also search for us on Facebook. And uh, in honor of Black History Month, everyone should check out James's new course um, and and definitely publicize that. Uh, Share this with your family and friends and other people who will benefit from it. And can you tell people where to find your course?
0: Yes, you can find the course. It'll be in our Instagram bio, it'll be in our Website from the drop down menu, you could also go to btbacademy.thinkific.com. That's btbacademy.thinkific.com. And uh, also, we're doing a new thing like uh, if you have an organization, but especially Uh, Stake and ward units who want to be able to take advantage of the course, I'm offering the course for entire units for a really low price, just in an effort to do two things. One, really spread the course out as much as I can and also make it accessible for as many people as possible. Uh, So make sure you tell your ward and stake leaders about it, because if they can use it, if they're committed to this work of abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, I have a resource for them and I've made it super affordable so that everybody in your congregation, everybody in your stake or your ward unit can be able to take advantage of it. So definitely let them know about that and uh, get at me if you have any questions. Um... Oh, and also a special thanks to uh, the friends that have been helping us out with the podcast, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, Stephanie Marts and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, the social media, mining our content for, for social media content, and also the team doing the incredible work of uh, assembling our episode outlines like uh, Stephanie Peterson, Mary Galavanez, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, Beth Johnson. Uh, Those outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episode from the same week. So uh, you'll be able to have a one-stop shop for uh, all three of us if you're interested in that. The link to the outlines is going to be in the show notes as well. Um, And also it's going to be in the drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the transcripts. Is there anything else I got to put the people onto, Derek? I feel like like this is a busy month, but like I, I feel like there's things that I'm missing.
1: No, I can't think of
0: anything. All right. We can always put it on social media if there is. But anyway, thank you guys for listening. Till we meet again next week.
1: Okay. Till we meet again next week. Bye-bye.